0: Well, good morning and welcome to everyone. Welcome to those joining us at uh, Crossroads in Highland Park in the 01. And special welcome to all the dads that are here. Uh, I am not always, but increasingly one of the older guys in the room. So I've started offering fatherly advice to fathers. First of all, saying, wow, it's an amazing opportunity and privilege and responsibility. Dads, we enjoy unearned, unmerited, but a, but a God-given influence in the lives of, of people. And uh, I, it's not that we're perfect, please. I'm not suggesting that you uh, need to be perfect, but I just want to always encourage you to recognize what an incredible opportunity we have. Um, secondly, I want to say to all you uh, dads who have young children, uh, it will get easier at some point, provided they leave. Uh, so, but there is a good 15 years where it's like, Oh my goodness, I don't have like 10 minutes of free time, and I don't have five cents uh, of extra money, and it's just go, 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 but it does get easier, so hang in there. And then I also, we always want to recognize that holidays in general, Hallmark holidays perhaps in particular, can be hard. They can be great for some people, it's a high, high, but it can be a really challenging time for others, so maybe this is a challenging day for you. We're glad that you're here. Uh, this week will be the second anniversary of my father's death. So, numerous times this week, I had this like, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't get a gift for my dad." And then it's like, "Oh yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't do that anymore. He's in heaven. He doesn't need uh, gifts." But it's just, there is that, uh, there is that, living in a broken world. And so, uh, this is a hard day, uh, we're sorry for that, but we're glad that you're here. So we are. Wrapping up this brief series called Contradictions out of Luke 19, and today's contradiction is quite easy to see. It is the contradiction between what many people think about Jesus and the way he actually was and is. And uh, there's often a a big gap. Many people are scandalized by uh, by this account of Jesus going into the temple and overturning some tables and taking out. Whips and driving away the animals and saying some harsh words because they don't. That's not. That it doesn't fit with their picture of Jesus, who is nice and quiet. He uses an inside voice all the time and he keeps his robe really clean. And he there's pictures of him and he always, of course, has a, a well manicured beard and a lot of product in his hair. It's well combed and 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 he looks sort of like a, you know a younger Mister Rogers, but he's he is he is safe at all times and uh, uh, very kind. And so it doesn't really mesh with this guy who has been on a three-year expedition camping trip with a dozen other young guys in a desert climate that is hard to eke out life and it's tough and it's bloody. And he is a uh, revolutionary who's gonna be put to death because he threatens the Roman Empire. And uh, and and he challenges people in ways that they cannot abide by, and so they have to have him put to death. That's the real Jesus, and uh, this is not the only time where we find him sort of uh, speaking truth to power and undermining those that are abusing their power, and so. There's a lot that goes on. We are, we are now entering sort of the final third of, of Jesus' life or of the Gospels. We're entering the final third of the Gospels. It's the last week of Christ's life. So 10 weeks that we have been on as he journeyed from Galilee down to Jerusalem, during which time there's a lot of teaching that Luke includes. We now, last week we saw that he entered into Jerusalem, sort of a, arranging his entry into the city to correspond With the Passover, because of course, he is the Passover Lamb. The Passover event was always about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. The the Old Testament is a big arrow pointing ahead to Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is pointing back to the Gospels. The Gospels themselves are pointing to the final week of his life. And the final week of his life is all this crescendo up to his death and his resurrection. And so, So, what we get is Jesus coming into this final segment, the last week, and he enters Jerusalem at the time of their independence celebration. Hundreds of thousands of people have packed into the city, it's a kinetic moment. They are gathered to celebrate their independence, except, oh, yeah, they're not independent anymore. They got their independence from the Egyptians, that's what they're celebrating, but they have subsequently fallen under the the arm of the Romans. And so the Romans are scared. They don't like this holiday. Pilate, who doesn't normally live there, the Roman governor, has come to Jerusalem to be there in order to suppress any revolts that might happen. And they are on high alert. Jesus is the man of the hour. His fame has been growing. He has sort of fanned that a little bit. He he could now come in uh, and demand an audience, which he which he will do. He could also walk in quietly. Because remember, this is, uh, this is a land before Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook. And, and it's a land before cameras. There's no newspapers. There's no reporting. Nobody knows what Jesus looks like. When he's betrayed, that they will need somebody to point him out. It's that guy right there that you're after. Because they don't know. So Jesus could have just quietly entered into Jerusalem. All kinds of people are streaming into the city. It would have been easy. But he stages his own parade, right? He does the opposite. And he leans into all the imagery and all the pageantry and all the prophecy. He rides in uh, on this donkey colt just like it had been predicted that the king would do. And he allows the people to call him king. And they put out the red carpet treatment, right? And everybody's singing his praises. And Rome goes on high alert, this is everything they fear, right? This is, oh no, tomorrow or tonight at, at midnight, he's going to issue the word through the crowd. You know, at midnight, we're, we're going to pick up arms. We're going to overthrow the Romans. That's what Pilate and the Roman guards fear. That's what they expect is going to happen. But in fact, uh, he is going to go in a very different direction. And uh, he is going to turn left. And head to the temple, and he's going to really step down his his uh, his addressing the Romans, and he's going to go after the religious leaders of the day, and uh, he is in their face. It is a bold in-your-face moment that Jesus uh, is going to is going to execute here, and and I just would ask you as we uh, as we turn there, I just would ask you, do you know who Jesus is really? Is your Jesus a revolutionary or is he safe? Right? Is your Jesus too small? Is he too soft? Because the Jesus uh, of the Gospels, the Jesus who is, is somebody who sort of turned the world upside down. And you don't generally do that by being really, really nice. So we're going to see that, Luke 19, if you want to turn there. And as you are turning there, it's the last few verses of Luke 19, and the first eight of chapter 20, as you're turning there, let me tell you just a little bit about the temple because you have to understand the temple in order to understand why this is so significant. Uh, so there's there's a handful of reasons why the temple is a really big deal to, uh, to the Jews, especially of Jesus' time. First of all, the temple is significant because of what it is. It is the place where God and man meet on Earth. Uh, now, God is not confined to the temple, but it is where He sort of manifests His presence in a unique and powerful way. It's where He dwells. As a matter of fact, John 1:14 says that uh, the, word is God, the word came down and dwelt among us. And some translations, some older translations used to say, the word of God came down and tabernacled among us. Okay? It's that word to dwell. And so the temple, also called the tabernacle, it means to dwell. This is where God, who is everywhere, but this is where God was particularly manifesting his presence. The second reason the temple is so significant is because of the location. Now today the temple is significant, the temple mount, the, the wailing wall, all that's left uh, of the temple is significant because uh, the, the Muslims look to the very same spot as being their third most holy site. They believe that it is, there's a rock there, they built a dome over the rock, it's called the Dome of the Rock. They built a dome over the rock. And uh, they believe that it was that rock marks the place where M- uh, Muhammad on a horse leapt up into heaven to get the revelation that he got. So it's vi- there is not a piece of real estate on the planet that is worth more than that spot right there. Right? If you could, if you could get a real estate appraisal of that spot, it would dwarf anything anywhere. Because the Jews see it as their most sacred space, Muslims see it as uh, as their third most holy spot. So, however pricey you know uh, beachfront property in L.A. is, or downtown New York, or London, or Tokyo, wherever you want to go, would not come close to that spot today. But the reason it was significant then, the reason it's significant for the Jews, the reason it's significant to us in one sense is because this is where God directed. Abraham to take Isaac back in Genesis 22 so back in Genesis 22 there's this unthinkable moment right Isaac uh, Isaac is not is has been born but God had said to Abraham in Genesis 12 right follow me and I will bless you and I'll bless the whole world through you through your descendants and so we go for about 10-15 chapters waiting for Abraham and Sarah to have a child and all the drama and intrigue as they go in different directions on that and then eventually they have a son Isaac. And uh, then God says in Genesis 22, Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son you love. Take Isaac and go to this place that I'm going to show you and tie him up there and sacrifice him. And so Abraham goes there, right? And it's this, whoa, time out. Who is this God? What kind of God would ask a father to kill their son? It's unthinkable. Of course, at the last moment, the Angel stops Abraham from doing this, but again, it was always all about Jesus because it 's that spot that God the Father will sacrifice God the Son on the cross. right So that this location of the temple is significant. And then additionally, the size of the temple was very significant back then. We have a slide uh, we can put this up. So this is a, a, a slide of of um, of jerusalem at some phase so jerusalem is an ancient city and it, as a matter of fact it's it, for thousands of years people have lived in this very same spot one of the biggest departments in israel is the department of antiquities because there's so much stuff to find if you go get a building permit to say i want to remodel our bathroom they show up every day to say okay what did you find right? Because you find all these artifacts. And if you say we didn't find anything, they go, yes, you did. What did you find? And we own it, right? So the Department of Antiquities is huge in Israel. The walls have moved many times. The walls of the ancient city of Israel today are Crusade-era walls. But what I want you to see in this, if you look at the top of the picture, you see the temple. It dominated 25% of Jerusalem. So, it wasn't just a building. It was 25% of the land in the city. It's a big deal. And then uh, it's not just that it was big. At various times, it was huge. So you have to sort of back up, and, and there's, there were different temples in different eras. Initially, when God leads the, the Jews out of Egyptian captivity uh, with Moses, uh, they traveling and wandering around in the desert. And God keeps freaking out the people when he shows up, when he talks to them. And they eventually say uh, to Moses, tell him we do not want him showing up anymore. He scares us silly. So they they go, okay, we're going to put this tent outside the camp and God will restrict those kinds of epiphanies to there and to Moses. And so there, there's this tent. Eventually the tent becomes a tabernacle. That's what they call it. It's a portable temple. And it's there that, there's a, that the, the priests would offer their sacrifices. That temple is in use for hundreds of years. In 1000 BC, they build the first temple. So David at some point says, God, it's not right that I live in this palace and you have this little tent. Uh, I'm going to build you a palace. And God says, no, as a matter of fact, you're not. You've been a man of war, but uh, your son can build me a temple. And so David spends the last part of his life collecting the goods to build the temple. So cedar trees from Lebanon and gold and white marble, he gets all this stuff together. And then uh, God raises up uh, supernaturally gifts Uh, craftsmen and artisans to be ready to build this incredible temple. We read about it in 1 Kings. And Solomon then, 1000 BC, will build this monstrous temple. And I think we've got a a slide uh, of that. Can we pull up that second slide? So Solomon will build this monstrous uh, temple and big grounds and it's all full of gold and it's it's amazing and this is the high water mark for Israel they are the superpower of the world and everybody comes and they marvel at all that they have but uh, after Solomon's death the kingdom of Israel splits into two northern ten tribes get taken over by the Assyrians the southern two are left for a few hundred more years they will fall in 597 Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian will come in plunder everything in, in Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he takes all the gold he takes all the good stuff he takes it out 586 he comes in and destroys it burns it to the ground and the Jews then are taken into captivity for 70 years in Babylon at the end of those 70 years they go back to Jerusalem right? They go back out of exile. This is the books of Ezra and uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and others, and they rebuild the walls for Jerusalem. And then at some point, they decide to rebuild the temple. And as I said last week, they rebuild the temple, but it's really not much. It's not very impressive. It's sort of a kid's little treehouse. They don't have any of the gold. They don't have the marble. They don't have the money. They don't have the power. They don't have anything. So they build this little temple. And in Haggai 2, we read about uh, God saying through the prophet Haggai, don't sweat it. Some of you remember what Solomon's temple was like. Don't worry about it. There is coming a time when the next temple will be even more glorious than Solomon's temple. Now, at one hand, he might be alluding to what comes next but he probably is pointing to Jesus who is going to be the temple, right? The temple ultimately is where God and man meet. <laughs> Jesus is God and man. When he shows up, he's the new temple. But there is, a, there is another temple, still referred to as the second temple. It's a little confusing. You got the first temple you have the tabernacle, then you got the first temple built by Solomon. Uh, then you got the second temple, the little tree house, sometimes called the second temple, sometimes called Zerubbabel's temple. When Herod the Great comes onto the scene, uh, he is going to rebuild the second temple. The fires of the temple uh, for the sacrifices never go out. So what Herod rebuilds is continues to be called the second temple. But he goes. On a massive scale. So Herod the Great is the uh, completely delusional psychopath. Evil, evil guy. Has his wife killed. Has his kids killed. Uh, he's the one that orders the slaughter of the innocents. When the wise men show up and they say, hey, we heard the, uh, the king of the Jews was born. We're coming to look for him. And he goes, oh really? Yeah, well, when you find him, let me know. And they, they don't go back. So he orders all the baby boys in Bethlehem to be killed. Right? This is Herod. Evil guy. He's called Herod the Great because he was an unbelievable architect. Had he, had the seven wonders of the world not been sort of in place at that point, historians say probably four of them would have been Herod's projects. He sets out, because he's not a Jew and he wants the favor of the Jews, he sets out to to build the Jews a temple that will win them over. He has 10,000 men work for 10 years on the foundation of this temple. Okay? So it is massive. They will be working on it for close to 70 years. And, and Josephus uh, will write about this temple. So G- Josephus is the Jewish historian. And he will write about this temple and he'll say, viewed from without... The sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes, overlaid all around with stout plates of gold. The first rays of sun it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they were looking straight at the sun. To strangers as they approached it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzled with white. So um, the temple is a big deal to the Jews. It's it is the place where God and men meet. It, its location is sacred. It is a massive building. And it, and it's, it is their centerpiece. It is their, the statement to the world that God chose us. Right? God manifests himself with us. And it's their court of law. It's their seat of government. It's, it's, their, it's everything to them. A few years ago... On well, 9-11, Al-Qaeda flew jets into the Twin Towers and into the Pentagon and, and had one slated to fly into the White House, right? Those buildings obviously not chosen at random. They wanted to go after what it meant to be an American, right? The financial center, the military, and, and government. Had they also flown planes into Silicon Valley and Hollywood and probably an SEC football stadium and uh, the Smithsonian Institute and the National Cathedral and the Lincoln Memorial and uh, Mount Rushmore, I mean, then we would have said, oh my goodness, they went after everything that it means to be an American. Right? That's what it would, have, would take for us to understand what the temple meant to a Jew. So the psalmist will say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, right? To be in the temple is is better by a thousandfold than to be anywhere else on the planet. So that's the context. First of all, it's the context for Jesus' statement and their response when uh, Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will rebuild it. Right? And, and they, first of all, they can't get their mind around this because he's a Jew. Why would he ever suggest anyone would destroy the temple? You can't do that. It's unthinkable. Secondly, they've had, at the time Jesus is, is around, the, temp, the these 10,000 men have been working for 43 years on this building. So he says, destroy it and in three days I'll rebuild it. And they're like... <laughs> Okay, 10,000 people have just worked for the last 43 years. What do you mean you rebuild it in three days? He, of course, is talking about his body. He's not talking about that building. But that's the context. That's what you have to understand to understand that uh, scenario. And you also have to understand all of that about the temple to appreciate what is about to happen in our passage today in Luke 19. So I'm reading beginning with verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were, um, who were selling. It's written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So uh, this is surprising. It's surprising to everybody that when Jesus had had Jerusalem ready for a revolution, he turns from the Romans and he goes into the temple. And now he's going after the religious establishment and he walks in there like he owns the place and uh, starts to let them have it. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. So um, they've been after him for a while. They've been following him. He's been uh, an agitation to them. But now that he is going toe-to-toe with them, in the temple courts they feel like they have no choice but to have him killed see uh, jesus is teaching next to the temple and we know from matthew's account that he's healing people as well and he's forgiving sins so in essence he has set himself up right next to the temple and he's functioning as the temple don't go in that building if you want your sins forgiven come to me don't go into that building if you want your prayers answered come to me right this is occasionally you'll see you know there's a there's a coffee shop on this corner and starbucks builds right next to it or there's a grocery store and just just 90 feet away another grocery store goes in and it's clear okay they just have said right we're going we're competing with you and we're confident we're going to win right we're going to drive you out of business that's what we're here there's not going to be two coffee shops within 100 yards there will be one if you come back in two years. There's not going to be two grocery stores within 100 yards. We're, we're confident we can shut you down. That's what Jesus is doing. He is right outside the temple. And he is, he is performing all the services of the temple. And they go, no, 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 we can't let this happen. we got to kill this guy. Verse 48. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So they there's, they got two problems. First of all, if they try to arrest him or kill him, uh, the crowd is likely going to side with him. So that's a, a challenge. Additionally, the religious leaders, so the Jewish religious leaders, formed a council called the Sanhedrin that operated under the Roman government. They had limited authority. They could not put anybody to death. Jesus will not be stoned for blasphemy because the Jews can't put anybody to death. That's what they would have done. He claims to be God. We're going to stone him. He is crucified for insurrection, for being a revolutionary, because the Jews are going to to appeal to the Roman overlords and say, you guys need to have him killed, and you need to have him killed because he's a threat to Caesar. But they don't have the ability to kill him. So reading on, chapter 20, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law together uh, with the elders came up to him. Tell us by what authority you do these, you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Okay, so he's teaching in in the temple courts and they're like, hey, wait, we're in charge here. We did not give you permission to do this. We don't even really know who you are. You didn't go to our schools. You're not carrying our union card, right? We don't recognize your authority. But who do you think you are that you're just doing this right now? So Jesus replies, verse 3, I will also ask you a question. So this is a common game. This is a little duel that's going on here. So you ask me a question. I'm going to ask you a better question. Uh, And we'll see who asks the best question. And Jesus, of course, always wins. He says, tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or, uh, you know, was it just, is he just a person? Is he just on his own? And they think about this. They discuss it among themselves. Verse 5. If we say he's from heaven, they'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you follow him? But if we say, no, it wasn't from heaven, he's just just a guy, then all the people will stone us because they think he was a prophet. So they answered, "Uh, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So this is, a, um, this is an in-your-face moment. Jesus is going up to the religious leaders who he sees abusing their power. They have created a system of religion. They, they, are, they are charging people money to have their sins forgiven. Right? They have set up all these rules They've added rules to the to the to the law that God had given uh, to the people through Moses. They've added all these rules on top of rules, and Jesus just says, "Look, you guys are done, right? I'm I'm going to shut you down," and uh, and he goes toe to toe with them, and of course, uh, it's going to get ugly here as this begins to play out. Jesus was not impressed with uh, their temple because he was and he is the temple and so he also knows uh, he says this this temple is going to come down and it did so in in 66 AD so roughly you know 30 years after Christ's crucifixion the Jews will revolt against Nero they'll kill 5,000 Roman soldiers Nero, uh, things don't happen instantly back then. It'll be a little while. Nero will actually uh, be out of the picture. But but Rome, Caesar will send uh, a a bunch of troops. They will surround Jerusalem. It'll be a five-month siege. There's a million people in the city. 900,000 of them will die. 100,000 will live. And that's at that point where Rome will then completely destroy the temple. They will completely destroy Jerusalem. They will, they will literally say, it is not going to exist anymore. So they will want to plow it under. And this is where the name Palestine comes. They said, Israel doesn't exist anymore. There is no Jerusalem. It's gone. And so there's now Palestine and the Jews will go into the diaspora and will be in, you know, in, in the diaspora until 1948 when the nation of Israel reconstitutes itself following World War II and the UN vote. So So Jesus knows that this temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus knows that he is the temple. And that's part of what we have to understand. Jesus is not just a nice guy telling you to keep your robe clean, telling you to be nice to other people. No. (laughs) Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the temple, the place where God and man meet. He claimed the ability to forgive sins. He claimed the ability to grant eternal life. That's what he claims. And uh, he will undermine uh, the whole establishment. And uh, he will challenge them. So some of you have been to Israel. I've been a couple times. All that's left of the temple is the, the west wall, right? Uh, the part of the foundation, the wailing wall. So you see pictures of all the, uh, the orthodox Jews that are there, that are, that are praying at the Wailing Wall. Uh, that's actually, there's tourists there as well. The, the Orthodox Jews, that, that's actually their day job. They get paid by the government to be there to pray. Uh, part of the deal that, that was set up when the nation was forming with uh, David Ben-Gurion was, he, he said, we will pay for you to study and pray at the Wailing Wall. So that goes on there. Tourists go there. And if you go there, I've spent several hours just sort of sitting there watching, people watching. People write out prayers on a little piece of paper, and then they go up and they stick it in the wailing wall. And uh, so I've, I've sat there. I've not ever written a piece of paper and stuck it on the wall. I've, I have prayed while I'm there, and I've prayed basically two things. One, God, I'm, I'm so thankful that I don't have to come here to pray right, that I can pray wherever I'm at. When, when Christ was crucified, the, the veil in the Holy of Holies, right, which separates the rest of the temple from the place that the high priest could go only once a year, the place where God sort of uniquely manifested his presence on earth. When Christ was crucified, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, from heaven downward, right? Because now, Jesus as our high priest, we have access to the Holy of Holies, you can come before God almighty and enter into his presence so so i was i would pray i'm thankful that i don't have to come to this wall in order to pray and i'm thankful that there doesn't need to be a temple because the ultimate sacrifice that shut down the sacrificial system has already been given right if, if the temple had remained i believe god took the temple because if the temple had remained we would be doing all kinds of weird things over there. There would be so much religious relic worship and everything else. And so God just takes it away because the temple was ultimately for the sacrifices to be made. Jesus' sacrifice. He was perfect man, perfect God. His death satisfies all the sins that need to be paid. He could represent us in the cross. And and here's how it goes one step further. If you place your faith in Christ, then you become a temple of God as well. Because what we're told in Romans is that the Spirit of God comes to indwell us. So there's a lot going on in this passage. And I would just close by asking you again. Is your Jesus neat and safe and nice and kind and sort of like what you would see if you watch Mr. Rogers? Or is your Jesus a revolutionary who says, no, I'm coming to change everything. I'm coming to bring a kingdom where the world works, where truth is spoken against power, where the oppressed are protected, right? It's a very, Jesus had a very different agenda than most people realize. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for loving us so much that you would send your Son and secure for us eternal life. We confess that uh, our view of you, our view, Lord Jesus, of you is too small, and we often think that uh, what we're being called to is to be uh, nice and to be well-groomed and to keep our clothes clean, as opposed to... uh, being part of this revolutionary kingdom of love and grace. May we uh, increasingly come to understand who you are and what you call us to, and follow your example. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.